All right, here's a saying I heard once. It used to be hilarious. Now, I guess it's just a little painfully true. Inside every old person is a young person wondering, what the hell just happened here? I am that person. I mean, I'm in my early 50s. Not totally sure I need to tell you why it's my early 50s, but, you know, whatever. And, you know, the game just seems to have changed. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. So when you hit midlife, whatever that is, is it just a slower, creakier version of being a 30-year-old? Or do things actually shift? I mean, what is contentment? What is ambition? What matters? Kieran Setia is a professor of philosophy at MIT in Boston and the author of Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Now, Kieran is mainly concerned with what they call ethics, which is, you know, broadly speaking, how to live a good life. But how do you even become a philosopher? Well, apparently it starts early. Even at seven or eight, I was asking philosophical questions. I remember standing in the playground at, at school, looking at tree trunks, thinking, but why does anything exist at all? Now, my vision of a philosopher is somebody locked away from reality, debating nuances of reality I don't really care about. Honestly, I know that's probably a little harsh, but you know, I've read books by philosophers, and most of them I really struggle to understand or, or make relevant. But you know, this is not the philosophy that Kieran's about. He is actually about building a bridge between philosophy and practicality. For me, what happened was that there was a kind of career midlife crisis in which I, I sort of was feeling very profoundly the disconnection between my professional life as a philosopher and the kind of humane, humanistic interest in the good life that had got me engaged in philosophy, and also a sense of the repetitiveness and the narrowness of, of certain parts of academic life. And so I didn't want to give up academic life, but I, I wanted to explore the good life in a way that might reach a wider audience. So that's the genesis of his book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Now, this doesn't mean I can finally ask Kieran the question I really wanted an answer to, which is, how do you know when you're in midlife? Well, the, I, I feel like there's, there's um, a, a, a huge variation in how people self-identify. Mm. And you know, so w when the phrase midlife crisis was coined, this is in an article by Elliot Jacques in 1965, death in the midlife crisis, unlike a lot of cultural tropes, there's a specific date, we can trace it to its origins. Right. And he was thinking mid to late 30s. And when I when I started to feel a kind of sense of crisis and, and no longer being young and un uncertain of what the next stage was, I was in my late 30s. I think a lot of people resist that, that particular um, sort of age classification. I have a lot of friends who are 50 who are like, well, you know, I guess I'm entering midlife. You know, <laughs> uh, So uh, I, I think right. the question of when exactly midlife is in terms of numbers is, is not, in the end, it's not going to really tell us that much. I mean, I think yeah. there's a kind of, for me, the, there was a, a cluster of problems that come into focus around midlife about the, right. the shape of human life. And I think they tend to come into focus roughly when you're 40, but they could, mm. you could be thinking about them precociously when you're 20, or, or really only start to struggle with them when you retire. So I think it, for, yeah. for me, from the point of view of, of the philosophical interest of midlife, the number is less important than worrying about um, the, the meaning of your life and the, the 
proximity or the the sort of uh, the the shape of your life pointing towards death and what you've achieved and what mm. else is important. You know, I, I remember reading years ago, I think Robert Bly has a quote where he says, when a man turns 35, he realizes his life isn't working. Um, yeah, and that's a right. kind of a, a resonant statement around what midlife is. But I also just talked to my my niece who's 18 and she's like, oh my God, I'm so burnt out. <laughs> and it, was, it felt like I was talking to somebody in uh, having midlife who has, who has not yet hit 20. And I was like, you know. Yeah, people talk about the quarter life crisis. <laughs> and right. there's, I think, a certain kind of acceleration in this and that I I was fortunate to grow up at a point where I didn't have to think so urgently mm. about my career or how I was going to make a living when I was 20. I mean, that was partly a matter of the times, partly a matter of economic circumstance. I think the that you know the current generation is facing an economic world more worrying, more more difficult, more challenging than right. my generation did. And so I suspect that some of these anxieties about what's actually important in my life and how can I balance what I need mm -hmm. to do in order to to get on with my life and what I actually really value are hitting people with urgency at, at earlier ages. Kevin, can you tell us about what you've chosen to read from today? Yes. So I'm going to be reading from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So Aristotle is you know, one of the great He's figures in Western <laughs> philosophy, yeah. you know, so He's the philosopher, right? Socrates, yeah, exactly. He's in medieval philosophy. He's just referred to as the philosopher with a capital P. So he was, he was taught by Plato, who was taught by Socrates. This is sort of the origins of Western philosophy mm. in, in ancient Athens, fourth century BCE. And I suppose there are two things to say about this before, before I read the passage. One is a kind of apology. So Plato is known for his beautiful dialogues. And apparently mm. Aristotle wrote beautiful dialogues too that Roman orators praised for their grace and the sweetness of their style. The tragedy is none of Aristotle's dialogues survive. So all we have of Aristotle, the entire body of work that we we sort of reconstruct his philosophical thinking from is lecture notes. And right. You know, when I when I think about the only thing that survives of my work is lecture notes. You know, it's a chilling prospect. So, so, uh, so we're sort of what we have is not it's not the most beautiful prose. It's sort of dense. It's 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 challenging, and so that's a that it will take a bit mm. of unpacking. But I think it's very rich. And then I suppose the other thing to say about the Nicomachean Ethics is that structurally, it's a very surprising book, a very surprising work. Because there's a kind of bait and switch. So the, the majority oh. of the ethics, the first eight books out yes. of 10 books, the, the chapters are called books, are devoted to the practical life, the practical virtues. Aristotle's thinking of this as a matter of being a politician or statesman or being a general fighting right. wars. And then suddenly in book 10, Aristotle says, well, by the way, that's all second rate. <laughs> the best life is the life of contemplation. Uh, and it's this huge swerve that is a kind of puzzle about the structure of the book and about what Aristotle is up to. And so the, the passage I want to read is sort of the heart of that swerve, the, the passage in which Aristotle lays his cards on the table and says, it's a life of contemplation that is really the best life for a human being. Brilliant. Kieran, this sounds intriguing. Are you reading from the 10th book? Yes, book 10 yeah, of the, the Nicomachean Yes. Brilliant. Well, Kieran, over to you. I'm looking forward to this. And happiness is thought to depend on leisure. For we are busy that we may have leisure and make war that we may live in peace. 
Now, the activity of the practical virtues is exhibited in political or military affairs, but the actions concerned with these seem to require trouble. This is completely true for warlike actions, for no one chooses to be at war or provokes war for the sake of being at war. One would seem absolutely murderous if he were to make enemies of his friends in order to bring about battle and slaughter. But the action of the statesman is also unleisurely, and apart from political activity itself, aims at positions of power and honors, or at all events, happiness for him and his fellow citizens, a happiness different from political action, and evidently sought as being different. So, among virtuous actions, those in politics and war are distinguished by nobility and greatness, but these require trouble, aim at a further end, and are not desirable only for their own sakes. But the activity of reason, which is contemplative, seems both to be superior in serious worth and to aim at no end beyond itself, and to have its pleasure proper to itself, which augments the activity, and the self-sufficiency, leisureliness, unweariedness, so far as this is possible for us, and all the other attributes ascribed to supreme happiness are evidently those connected with this activity, he means contemplation. Hence, this will be complete happiness if it be allowed a complete term of life, for none of the attributes of happiness is incomplete. Such a life would be superior to the human, for one lives it not insofar as he is a human being, but insofar as something divine is present in him. And as much as this divine element is superior to our composite nature, so is its activity superior to that of the other virtues. Thus, if reason is divine in comparison with man, the life according to reason is divine in comparison with human life. And we must not follow those who advise us, being men, to think of human things and being mortal of mortal things, but must, so far as we can, make ourselves immortal and strain every nerve to live in accordance with the best thing in us. For even if it be small in bulk, much more does it in power and worth surpass everything. That's great. And that was beautifully read as well, Kieran. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, you've got a great, you've got a great dramatic flair for, for reading. Um, what is it about this passage that strikes a chord for you, Kieran? Well, it's a passage that I've puzzled over and read and reread probably more than any other passage in any philosopher. Mm. And, and that's because I think there's something deeply right about it, but I've also come to feel very wary of it. Right. And so maybe I could start by saying what I think he's really onto, what the, so the deeply right point he's making is. So the question is, you know, why does Aristotle suddenly reject the life of practical activity and the life of practical virtue? And the answer is uh, that, as he puts it, it requires trouble. So right. it's a great phrase. It, it, it's it's that these activities really matter. It's not that they don't matter, mm. but their responses to problems or needs that we would rather not face. That's why we go to war. That's what politics is about. It's for Aristotle, it's sort of solving problems. So in a yeah. way, the value of these activities is a double negative. It's, the, it's negating or getting rid of something bad. I call right. these ameliorative activities. Right. You, only rise, you only rise to the challenge when there's a challenge that needs to be risen to. And exactly. Do we yeah. even and, want that challenge? And, and, and you, you, in an ideal world, you might think, well, we wouldn't need armies in an ideal world, but given yeah. the world we're in, it's important to be able to defend the city or whatever it might be. Yeah. And Aristotle's point that I think is really deep and right is that 
if those were the only things that we that were of value, it wouldn't be clear that anything in life had positive value, and it wouldn't be clear that life was worth living at all. I mean, there has to be something more than solving problems, right? And and so that I think is a really important point. I, I call the acti- the the values or the, the activities that have value that isn't just problem solving. Mm. I call that existential value because it's the value that sort of makes existence, makes life worth living. Yes. And it, I think this has an application to, to cases like the, the midlife crisis, because I think one kind of way in which midlife can be characteristically challenging is that the press of things that need doing, the problems at work, the fires to put out, the mm. difficulties with kids, the dealing with your aging parents. Just the relentlessness the, of it all. Yeah. And, and all of that is worth doing. So it's not that it's not yeah. worthwhile, but there's so much of it that you could get so much of your life can become consumed with mm. just preventing bad things that you lose touch with the things that make life worth living in the first place. And Aristotle's pointing in, in part to the, the fact that it's the, the non-problem-solving activities that in some sense make life good to begin with and, and that we, we, we have to recognize that. Um, and so I think that is a really important, important point and one that, that has this sort of deep resonance for me and I think for a lot of people. I, I, I think I understand what falls into the categories of the, of problem solving. Yeah. But what what sort of activities are in the category of not about solving the problem that are for the sake of themselves rather than for fixing something that isn't working as well as it could have? Yeah. So this is where we're sort of starting to get into the 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 bits of Aristotle that are a little bit more worrying. So for him, the paradigmatic example of this is contemplation. Really, the only example of this right. is contemplation. And by contemplation, he means contemplating the structure of the world and God as the as the final cause of the world. And so he is he's not thinking of scientific or philosophical inquiry, which are in a way problem solving. He's thinking mm-hmm. of, as it were, after you've figured it all out, you sit back and reflect. And right. maybe that is an activity that has profound value and maybe it is a value that's not problem solving but i think it's a mistake to to focus on that exclusively so i think art and literature telling jokes and stories with friends you know right. listening to music swimming or sailing hobbies playing games with family and friends those are all activities that have the kind of existential non problem solving value that aristotle is pointing us towards yeah and i would say i mean this is a more complicated case but i think an important one he, in a way, is thinking all of our needs are ones we will be better off without. As it were, the right. ideal life will be one in which we didn't need to eat or build shelter <laughs> it's for a, ourselves. It's enlightenment. Right. You know, sit under the Bodhi tree and then you, life's sorted out for you. Exactly. Is- and, and, and that might not be right. So, I mean, I, I'm inclined to think that there are regrettable needs. There are, you know, mm-hmm. the need to defend the city in war. I wish we didn't have that. But then there are needs things we need to do that are not really regrettable in that way, like the need mm. to eat uh, or the need to to build our own environment. And so that makes room for a wider range of activities to have existential value. So I actually think a lot of work can have existential value. You can, mm. If there are things you're doing that, that you would call work that aren't just solving problems you wish you didn't have to deal with, but as right. it were, the work you wish you had then I think that too has the kind of existential value Aristotle is pointing towards. And I, I think that's something he missed. Where 
do you find work like that? Because it's true that for some people, it's like, actually, you may not have that much choice because you're overwhelmed by kids and parents and too much work and worry about money and worry about whatever else. But it's also true that for, for many of us, there's a space where we're like, actually, I have some agency in terms of where I put my time and my focus and my commitment. But I, but I do wonder, it's like, so, so where do I start? <laughs> where do I find yeah, the thing yeah. that speaks to a life of meaning for me? I think that's a hard question. And I think you're right to say that people often have relatively limited control of the sort of basic structure of the work they need to do in order to mm -hmm. live. And so I don't want to downplay the non-work activities. I think often the, the way to find existential value is to find it with friends and family and hobbies and things right. sort of extra vocational, uh, things outside of work. I mean, in work, um, I don't know if you know that there's a book by David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs, if I'm allowed to, yeah. if I'm allowed to say bullshit yeah, on the in podcast. Fact, it, it was um, one of the books uh, read out by one of my previous oh, really? guests here. So it, you're, you're, you're right on point. <laughs> it's a terrific book. And part of yeah. what he points to is that one of the, the terrible things about contemporary work is that people often find a lot of what they're doing worthless and they can't even see the, the, the point of it. So I think bullshit mm. jobs are the hardest. I think to the extent that your job isn't bullshit, you should be able to find in it something you're producing or contributing mm. to producing or someone you're helping. I think you know, we sh a lot of jobs are sort of fundamentally about service to others or helping others or making other people's lives better. And in those kinds of sort of zones of your job, those, the, the, if you think, sort of look through what you're doing, problem solving day to day to the outputs that make people's lives, that make something or make people's lives better, that's the first place to look for yeah. um, sort of existential value at work. But I think it really depends from case to case. So one way to think about it is just it, it, it kind of makes sense to do an audit, to sort of look through your, your, mm. look through your week of work and say to yourself, okay, right. of the things I'm doing, how much is just dealing with problems that I wish weren't there in the first place? Mm -hmm. And where can I find in my own sort of work week or work month the sort of threads of things that made me want to do this job to begin with. And, you know, you may not be able to find them. It may be that the job is, is, is just, um, is, is just ameliorative. It really is just about, about, mm -hmm. um, solving problems. But, um, I think most jobs have something in them that, that has a kind of value that isn't, isn't just dealing with problems in that way. But uh, yeah, I think it, it's, it's kind of a personal thing to sort of, yeah, you know, to, to, as I said, sort of audit your own experience at work. One of the tensions I think that appears when you're, when you're seeking a life of meaning is the question around how much do you settle <laughs> and how much do you disrupt? Yeah. Because there is a sense that, um, in settling and accepting what's around you and stopping resisting it, there's a way that potentially there's a path for happiness there. But I think also there's a way that we find meaningful work and in some ways we unlock our own greatness by taking on the hard things, which which is both exciting. It's like kind of that Csikszentmihalyi flow state, but it's also terrifying because you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I'm just <laughs> making this up as I go along. But it feels like it's the, the edge of who I am and the edge of my own growth. What what for you is the the way of navigating this 
tension between the, the, the call to settle and the call to disrupt yourself. It's really, really interesting to me that you, you bring this up because I, the, the other part of the, the passage from Aristotle that I've been really obsessed with recently and that, that points towards some of the work I've been doing during the pandemic is, is about precisely this. So, so the passage ends with Aristotle's answer to that question. And his answer is, we must not follow those who advise us being men to think of human things and being mortal of mortal things, but must, so far as we can, make ourselves immortal and strain every nerve to live in accordance with the best thing in us. And yes. so he sort of ends with this rousing call to aim for and focus on existential value. He's saying, you know, find the things that aren't problem solving, but that you truly value as sources of meaning in life that make life positively good and devote yourself wholeheartedly and exclusively to the pursuit of them. And that can seem inspiring, but actually I, <laughs> I've come to feel very wary of it. And I right. think I think that there's a sort of fantasy there that it's easy to fall into. And I, I think the, the idea of aiming to live your dream life, the sort of power of positive thinking idea, mm. is very is is dangerous because sometimes the, the dream life just isn't available and it involves a kind of denial of reality to try and, right. and, and pursue it. And sometimes trying to pursue it is sort of distorting. And so the, the thing I've come to think, and this is sort of getting closer to a direct answer to your question, is I think the first step is, is a kind of realism about what's hard in your life and what the problems are in your life mm. and not uh, sort of turning away from them or looking too quickly for solutions. And I, I think. The, the sort of idea that we can um, just sort of positive think our way out of any kind right. of problem is, is a real... Um, I've got a vision board. That's all I need. Exactly. <laughs> I, and I, I, so I think there's a little bit of that in Aristotle, unfortunately, mm. in, in, this, in this passage. So um, I think it, then there's the question, you know, once you, you've got a sense of what's difficult in your life and you have to figure out, like, which of these problems do I, as it were, lean into, which do I retreat from? There, I think it's very hard to come up with rules. I mean, this is another thing that Aristotle is really wonderful about in the Nicomachean Ethics and very, very influential in, in, in saying is there is this temptation to, to want simple rules that will apply to every circumstance. But very mm -hmm. often, once you've, once you've sort of figured out your circumstance as well as you can, it's really a matter of judgment and it's really personal and, and particular. And so looking to a kind of simple rule that's going to tell you an algorithm that will tell you how to solve your life is yeah. unlikely to be the way to do it. It's going to involve close attention to your life yourself and really talking to friends and people who know you and know your life is often going to be a much more illuminating and reliable right. way to figure things out than looking to a kind of list of 10 rules that mm -hmm. someone who doesn't know you has, <laughs> has, has, um, has produced. Right. And so that, that's part of what Aristotle has this sort of idea of practical wisdom as uncodifiable. It's, it's a kind of ability to judge your circumstance and that you can, and to judge other people's circumstances that you can, you can sort of convey and you can give rules of thumb, but there aren't going to be, yeah, there aren't going to be simple principles for it. So it really right. is a, a sort of matter of drilling down into your own life and, and ideally with other people. See, Aristotle just wouldn't have made it in the 21st century if he hasn't got the capacity to do clickbait. Ten guaranteed rules to make you happy that's, by tomorrow. That's right. You won't that's, believe number seven. <laughs> that is, yes, he is. He is the enemy of of 
clickbait. Although, you know, there are, you know, it's not that there aren't ideas that you could you could turn into clickbait in Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even this idea of existential value, I feel like one of the mm. reasons, things I I like about it and one of the ways in which I gravitate towards it is that I feel like there's a kind of slogan there that it is useful to just bear in mind to sort of yes. every so often during my day, I think about um, uh, how much, is there a little window in my day to do something that I don't have to do? Um, and I right. like having that as a kind of motto, even if I don't always manage it and and I yeah. e either to remember to recite the motto or to live up to it. So I think right. you can get, like if not clickbait, you can get sort of ideas from Aristotle, but they're never going to be, yeah, they're never <laughs> going to be sort of simple guaranteed rules. Kieran, you, at the start of the conversation, you, when we're talking about what is midlife and you, as almost as a throwaway line said something along the lines of, you know, death becomes more real to you. You kind of suddenly you move away from that sense of immortality you have when you're younger to going, Oh, actually death is a thing now. Um, I'm curious to know what, what is the role of death in helping to shape a meaningful life? That's a great question. And, uh, a hard question because, I think one way in which philosophers have often wanted to respond to the prospect of death is by trying to argue that death really isn't bad for you or isn't harmful or isn't really something to fear at all. And so, you know, there's an argument from another ancient philosopher, Epicurus, that, well, when you're dead, if you don't exist, you won't feel any pain. So what's to be afraid of? And, you know, it's, it's tempting to 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 go for that kind of uh sort of consolation but actually you know it doesn't really make sense i mean the, the point is that <laughs> the, 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 the the reason death is terrible is not that you'll feel pain it's all the things you won't do and all the things you won't yeah. get and and being told you won't exist doesn't uh help with that so i think i think for me acknowledging that death is a, a profound deprivation that it is a, a terrible thing and that we face it and that and that we can't sort of argue our way out of it or, or convince ourselves that it's not um, bad is a, a starting point. I mean, this goes along with the sense that sort of a, a frank acknowledgement of the ways in which life is hard is really the precondition of dealing with any of the ways in which life is hard. Mm. And then I think, the, I mean, the other way in which I, I feel like thinking about death shifted my sense of my life and that I think it can productively shift people's senses, sense of their lives is that for me a big part of the the sort of challenge of midlife the big the midlife crisis was this idea that I got a bunch of tasks that I was going to keep repeating over and over again I'd, I'd teach another class or I'd write another paper and you know there would be a certain number of them and then I would die and if I worked really hard it would be you know 37 and if I <laughs> didn't work so hard it would be 24 right. and putting it in those terms made me realize structuring my life around the sort of frantic completion of activities mm. completion of projects was a kind of was itself a kind of distorting influence so this is a, another kind of distinction that i think is really important also this is an i could have read this passage from aristotle it's another one that has aristotelian roots is this distinction i want to draw between what i call Telic activities comes from the Greek telos, which are projects that aim at a completable end. Right. And atelic activities, basically, this is about sort of things that don't have a natural terminus and, mm. and that the value is in the process. So you might think, you know, making your kids dinner tonight is a telic activity. You're going to hopefully finish it. 
parenting is just an ongoing activity. It, it's not like <laughs> Never it ends. ends. There's no there's no point yeah. at which you're like, well, I've parented that one. It's all over. It's yeah. it, it 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 doesn't have a built-in terminus. And I I think one thing that that thinking about the finitude of life and that the sort of the, the countability of projects, the fact that there's a certain number of things you'll get done project-wise, mm. can shift one's orientation towards the value of the process, the value of the what I call atelic activities. And that, right. it, that that is, I think, for me, the biggest way in which sort of thinking about the temporal shape of human life, the finitude of human life around midlife has changed my sense of what actually matters and, and led me to try to to reshape not exactly what I do, but what I value in what I do. Like, is it getting this paper finished or is it more that I'm writing a paper, which is something I will finish, but in order to be thinking about philosophical problems about the good life, where thinking about philosophical problems about the good life, thinking about how to live is an atelic activity. It's not like there's a, it's going to end. That's an right. ongoing thing. And so that kind of reorientation has been a very big part of sort of adapting to midlife for me. That's really interesting. That's, you know, the project is a time-bound manifestation of a larger commitment to a better self that you have. Right, exactly, and it, it it's it, you know it's not that projects don't matter. Often, getting it matters whether you get things mm. done, and you know there are deadlines, and it's not that that those are to be neglected. But it's also very important not to neglect the ways in which, in the process of pursuing things, you're you're sort of finding a value that isn't exactly isn't mortgaged to completion in the way projects are. I mean, I think this also connects with. Uh, Another theme I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is about success and failure, because it's also yeah. projects are, you succeed or fail in them. Mm -hmm. Atelic activities, these sort of pro, the process of engaging with things, it's not that it's exactly immune from failure. You, you know, sometimes you, you can't be in the process of doing what you want to be in the process of doing, right. but, but it doesn't have quite the same relationship to a kind of finite failure right. where you either, you did it or you didn't. It's more and, a dimmer switch of adequateness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 And it, I, I think that that's another reorientation that I think can be helpful in in sort of sort of distancing us from certain ways of evaluating our own lives that that mm. are not. I mean, they're not exactly new. They have ancient uh, origins. But I think, I mean, there there's, there are ways in which the kind of structure of of our current lives built around needing to get jobs, needing to make money. The, the sort of various kinds of milestones that you're right. aiming at, things you have to get done. I think that sort of cultural circumstance really sort of lends a lot of weight both to the sort of project-driven um, structure that I think we need to get away from a bit, the success or failure focus that I think can be overwhelming mm. and distorting, and and the, the sort of focus on you know these ameliorative activities, on, on problem solving, as opposed to what you would actually do if you had the freedom to to do what you wanted. So, you know, navigating midlife, you and me, and you writing a book about it. Um, how how has your relationship to ambition changed? Well, that's a good question. I I would say a couple of things about that. The first, they both fall under the heading of, it's one thing to to say this in theory; it's another thing to live <laughs> it in practice. Yeah. So, so one of them is this re intellectual recognition that I was very project driven, 
excessively project driven and that I should yeah. value the process more. I should sort of try to recover, you know, I mentioned being, you know, seven or eight years old, staring at the tree trunks, thinking mm -hmm. about philosophical questions. I should try to recover some of that spirit, that it was just what mattered was to be engaged with these deep, hard questions. The intellectual recognition of that came much earlier than any real practical steps towards <laughs> doing it. Because I think actually yeah. changing, sort of shaking the project-driven orientation is a more than intellectual achievement, a more than intellectual challenge. And so... Uh, I think I have made progress, and I think I am more detached from that. But that's that's come partly from sort of non-intellectual things, or not straightforwardly intellectual work. Like right. meditation has been a very big thing for me in in trying to get a sort of set aside the future focus and get better at just attending to what's happening now and valuing mm -hmm. what's happening now. So that's one thing that 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 I think has changed and that has made me feel less attached to to academic ambition. I mean, mm. the other thing I will say is that I, I guess when I wrote this book about midlife, I thought maybe I didn't think of it as more than a one-off. I thought I've been an academic. I'm having a midlife crisis. <laughs> write a book about the midlife crisis. Exactly. Get over it. Seems like a plan. And I don't know <laughs> that I thought I would just go back to, to regular work as an academic afterwards, but I didn't think I wouldn't. And, right. uh, so I didn't expect to make radical changes in what I do. And in fact, I was wrong about that. In that, that so I'm writing, writing another book now that is also um, maybe even more aimed at a, a kind of wider audience. It's much more memoir-y. It's much more personal, even the midlife, which was was in some ways a personal book. And so I feel like that, it, I don't know how this relates to ambition exactly, but it, it, I, I feel like the sort of sense of what I want to do with my life has shifted in that I, I kind of feel now like I would like to have two two sides to it, one being teaching, research, mm. my, my academic life. But I'd like to sustain and, and carry on writing in a different vein uh, and writing for, for an audience in a way that's it's very different for being an academic where the audience you're writing for, it's, it's both small and quite specialized. And that has its, special, has its rewards. Right. But it's very different from writing in a vein where you're thinking, I I want to communicate this to absolutely anyone right. who's willing to listen. Right. How do I how do I move people who may not have the technical knowledge that a, a fellow philosopher might have? Right. No. Ex exactly. And I I I I feel like that shift in in sort of conception of audience is. I mean, it's quite deep. I mean, I, I I've said this uh, I, in, uh, at other times too that that. One of the things I realized when I started writing more for non-academic audiences was that the editorial voice in your head when you're an academic, especially when you're a philosopher, is a nightmare. I mean, the editorial <laughs> right. voice is, hold on, you need to distinguish X from Y, slow this down. And like, I've got, I've got you've 15 got to start objections. footnoting from the first, the first sentence needs a footnote. <laughs> exactly. And it's, I mean, it's not conducive to writing in a way that's actually fun to read. No. Because the, the point is not, the point is, a certain kind of impregnability against various kinds of skepticism. And I think right. actually when I'm, it's not that I, I, I imagine that when I'm writing for other people, writing for a non-academic audience, they'll take everything I say on trust. But I think I do imagine a kind of willing audience, an audience who want to read and want, right. want to learn and want to be, to be engaged and to see something good in what you're writing rather than an audience whose sort of professional job it is to, to, uh, object to, to everything to engage in the engage in the argument and offer an alternative. Right. Yes, exactly. So I think I think that's a big shift, and I I, I feel like that yeah. has been. 
I wasn't anticipating that there would be big ch- sort of changes in that way. In in that a lot of the midlife book is about how to carry mm. on doing what you're doing in a better way, rather than making dramatic life changes. And I feel like a, a thing I hadn't anticipated was that my life would it, it would sort of yes. outwardly change uh, in, in the ways it has. Is the is the new book still provisionally entitled Life is Hard? It is, yes. So yeah, yes. it's it's supposed to come out next year. I'm supposed to finish it um, <laughs> soon. I have a deadline, so I'm I'm working on it Speaking right now. Speaking of Life is Hard and projects, there we go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and yes, yeah, so it's supposed to come out next year. Life is hard, and it's yeah. I mean, it, it connects the things we've been talking about, and so this yeah. other way of responding to Aristotle, where the, I, I, I'm much more focused on the the. The concern that he's he's idealizing life or or downplaying the ways in which life is hard, and so the, the kind of project is to think really about what a kind of philosophical approach to the good life or living well would look like if it started not with the ideal, but with the ways in which life is difficult mm. and how we how we can adapt to them. So there are you know chapters on loneliness, grief. Failure and frustration, injustice, yeah. and you know, I started thinking about this before the pandemic. But it, it you know, it, was, just, it describes last week for me. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, it, it, it is. It is really. It, it was changed very much by the pandemic yeah. because things like loneliness went from being you know serious localized problems to being things that virtually everyone mm. had a kind of profound relationship to. Similarly, grief. I think. I mean, people. People's engagement with the hardships of life has been transformed over the last year right. 18 months or so and so yeah my work on the project was was changed by that and i sort of wrote it under pandemic conditions in a way that it, it was itself a kind of consolation you know i i, I would i would yep. bury myself in my office and just think I'm going to block out the outside world for at least a few hours and just just write and uh, yeah. So that that's it, that was a, an unexpected sort of feature of how how this book got written. Do you have a subtitle for it yet? Will it have well, a subtitle? I, we'll see. The, the 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 current subtitle again. This is tentative. Is philosophy for troubled times? We'll see if that if if um if that if that changes. Well, um, I, I, but I'm I'm going to I'm I'm this. You didn't ask for my opinion or feedback. I think you're underselling the book by then. Yeah, well, so that, that it, it that there is a question about whether it it needs something that sort of sort of brings out more what it can do for you and why this book could who's your make idea, a difference. Who's your ideal reader? Well, I, I mean, it's it's aimed at at both the people who are sort of have a pre existing interest in philosophy and would like to read a philosophy book about how to live that is mm. has an unusual and distinctive angle because it starts with with hardship and is is quite personal. But I would also like it to be a book that can reach anyone who is struggling with any of the things it's about. So anyone who's struggling with loneliness or grief, I hope even if they're not sort of antecedently interested in philosophy, will find that in some way it changes their perspective, illuminates things, and helps right. them to to come to terms with the ways in which life is hard. So And if you so, had to pick if you had to pick one of those audiences who you most wanted to serve, which one is it? The first one or the second one? Well, that's a uh, you're asking me a hard question. I mean, I I feel like I have written in in the sort of deep desire to be able to reach 
both and not to have to choose between them. So, uh, you so you're, you're pressing on a, on a <laughs> sensitive point. I mean, I suppose in the end, I, I, it, it is, it's very much for me more uh, driven by the problems than by an antecedent sort of sense that here's a survey of philosophical ideas. I, and the way I think about yeah. it is, I, I'm, I, I want to write essays about these problems that connect them to one another and that bring out how to how we could approach them and i'm a philosopher so the lens through which i think about all of this is simultaneously my own life my own experience with with pain and infirmity with loneliness with grief yeah. with injustice and a philosophical lens and so it it, it it's sort of a, a kind of how a philosopher might approach these these problems as a human being. And so I guess that that tends towards the second thing. It's certainly not a kind of um, survey philosophy book of here's what right. philosophers have said about the good life. It's here are some problems and I'm going to try to grapple with them. I'm a philosopher, right. so it's going to be a philosophical grappling. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, this is utterly unasked for opinions from me. It's not even feedback. It's just random opinions from a dude you've never met before. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but I've written some books. And so I know, I know just how hard it is to title and subtitle a book. And I think the title is great. Yeah. And the current subtitle serves the first audience, which is people who kind of have a, some footing in philosophy. Right. And right. it puts off the second audience, which is like, I don't want philosophy. I want to help navigating these hard problems. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's... if you're trying to serve that second audience, which is the bigger audience as well, um, there's a, another subtitle to be found, perhaps. I think um, you and my editor seem to be uh, on the same page about this. So yeah, I, th I she think called me up. I, th <laughs> I, I think I think there's a conversation about that in my in my uh, in my nearish <laughs> future. Um, so yeah, I, I I've been thinking about that. I mean, I think it's a it, part of what the challenge for me about thinking about this is that in some way. I feel that a kind of loyalty to philosophy uh, and to the book in its way that that I feel like philosophy or philosopher or something ought to be there. Um, I'm not sure that's not a deal breaker. Maybe that's maybe that's wrong, but but I do think that 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 is a kind of uh, the rest of the subtitle. I'm not so much c committed to, yeah. but um, so I think that that is part of the the. That's sort of a manifestation of the the double life question of you know I'm a philosopher but also I I, I kind of would like to be a writer who writes for anyone mm -hmm. and how to how exactly to balance and fit those two identities together is is an interesting. So I'd be more thing. interested in a subtitle that didn't talk about philosophy but talked about a philosopher. Yeah, right. So if it was a philosopher's guide to navigating the hardest things about life, right. Now I'm interested. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's right. That philosopher is captures you the keep sense saying of how personal personality. It is for you. Right. That it, it and also a philosopher also I think is right because it's not. I think the thing about philosophy for troubled times suggests that it's sort of philosophy is this monolithic thing that I'm going to wheel out. Exactly. Which is not how it is. It's it is and really it's scary. Is me. It's scary for almost everybody. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't no. scare philosophy. I don't even know such a big word. I don't even know what it means. That's interesting. Um, hey, yeah. <laughs> Kieran, let me ask you a final question, if I may. Sure. What what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Oh boy, um, what needs to be said that ha hasn't been said in this conversation? Um, one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is present in in the the excerpt from Aristotle and also in the the writing and thinking I've been doing recently is 
the the question of injustice and really the question of the relationship between living one's own life well and one's mm. obligations and commitments to other people. So I think the other theme that that we, we can't really tackle now, but I think mm. comes out of Aristotle and I I think is worth grappling with and that I have been grappling with is how to figure out what in terms of living a life we can be we can feel okay with we have to do and what we can do to respond to the injustice of the world to in, in my case right. I mean climate change and climate justice is sort of the thing that has been most engaging and and sort of urgent for me but there are many other forms of injustice that we're surrounded with that again the pandemic has made it especially vivid and i think it's really important not to think of the idea, the question of the good life as a question about you in isolation from right. the rest of the world and the rest of society and that that's a thing that we have not maybe foregrounded as yeah. much as we might have Okay, well, that was pretty funny. Michael, don't give anybody advice, Bungay Stanier, slathering on advice about how to write a book title or a subtitle. But, you know, audience hooks aside, what I'm sitting with from this conversation is this realization that, yes, things do shift as you get older. It's not just a younger you with backache. You know, it's like the rocket ship going into space and those booster rockets fall away and suddenly it's a different trajectory, it's a different gravity, it's a different way of relating to what's up and what's down. Now, I'm not sure it came out explicitly in this conversation uh, between Kieran and I, but I am contemplating, you know, what is sweetness to me now? Where do I find joy? And what do I need to let go of so I can fully step towards that? How about you? If you're after more of Kieran, you can certainly buy his books, which I would recommend. He's got a new one coming out, as he said in the interview. And you can find him on Twitter, where he's most active, at his full name, Kieran Setia. I'll spell it for you. K-I-E-R-A-N-S-E-T-I-Y-A. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate you being one of the, the many people, actually, who listen to this podcast. You can help me out by leaving a review on your podcast app. You can help me out by passing this on. If you know anybody else in entering midlife or exiting midlife or struggling with midlife, perhaps this is a conversation that they'd like to hear. And if you'd like more, please check out the Duke Humphreys membership site, totally free. You'll find it on the podcast page on mbs.works. And uh, you'll find downloads, you'll find transcripts, you'll find extra episodes that we haven't released. Thank you for listening. You're awesome and you're doing great.